0: Good morning, okay, wonderful singing, so encouraging, amen, and I love that statement from the London Baptist Confession, it's so important to make careful distinctions in theology, and it preserves our our joy and our worship of the true Christ, and just, of course, we want to know more about Christ, I mean, he is our life and our joy so uh, that clarity uh, frees us to then uh, enjoy more of him and the the wonder of the incarnation. So now we get to hear this, uh, this one, the Lord Jesus teach and it is so fun to be in the Gospel of Luke uh, <laughs> to just every week have Jesus uh, doing something or teaching something and uh, to sit at his feet so 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 good. We're going to complete a chapter. What a milestone. Chapter 5 is done uh, soon, hopefully. And uh, so let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. And let me read the text for us. Follow along as I read. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truth upon our hearts. A Little over 10 years ago, Apple ran a series of commercials that were wildly popular uh, they had two men uh, who uh, each represented uh, the, a different company. So the commercial would start out the same way, and you'd have one guy, two, just like a blank screen behind them, and two men standing there, and one of them would say, Hi, uh, I'm, I'm a PC. And the other one would say, and I'm a Mac. Actually, it was flipped. Uh, I'm a Mac, and the other guy would say, I'm a PC. And then they would talk about, uh, usually, uh, the, the PC would start, and he would say, You know, you'd have all these problems. You'd be like sneezing and, and, uh, and have, he's like shivering. He's got a uh, a blanket on. And, and Mac says, Oh, PC, what's wrong? And he's like, Oh, I've got all these viruses and, you know, that I've caught. And, and, and Mac's like, Oh, that's, you know, sorry to hear that. I mean, I don't don't get that because my operating system, you know, you know, and they, they say the thing. And so it's a big promotion for Apple Mac products. And, but the PC guy always has a problem of some sort, and the Mac guy doesn't. And so there's this back and forth, and it was, a, it was a, good, uh, a good way to promote Mac, I guess. Now, I don't know if you're a Mac or a PC person, but they say once you go Mac, you can't go back, right? Uh, and, but if you've ever had the experience of starting to transition some of your technology to Apple, uh, and you still have some at PC, then it's kind of complicated. They don't always talk with each other, right? You got to buy all these extra things to connect. The, the, the you know, um, what do you call it? The cords, they don't always match. And so th- they don't always go together. They don't mix well. Well, that is kind of the point of what Jesus is saying in these parables. They didn't have computers at that time, but maybe he would have used the illustration of Mac and PC. I don't know if he were teaching. And this is the point Jesus is making things that don't mix well. Fasting at a wedding, tearing a uh, piece from a new garment and putting on an old one, and putting new wine into old wineskins. You say, well, what is, what is Jesus talking about? What is he saying? Well, he's showing the incompatibility of the new with the old. It would be like switching. Half your stuff to Apple and half your stuff's at PC and you're trying to figure it out. They don't don't quite fix. You gotta make the whole transition. You gotta go all the way and and switch. What is happening here is, as Jesus continues to teach, he's in a series of confrontations with the religious leaders. And one of the things that we're gonna see in our passage, the main thing, is that Jesus is bringing the new covenant. He's gonna say that uh, at the Passover in chapter 22. This is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus bringing the new covenant is like bringing a new operating system. If, we, if you keep my illustration for a minute, sorry if you, if you love PC. Um, but think of the Mosaic Covenant as like PC, okay? And, uh, and maybe if you wanna push the illustration even a little bit farther, uh, think of all the ways the Pharisees added onto the Mosaic Law, which was good, but they added to it, they added rules and regulations that weren't there, and you could call those viruses. So you take PC, you add viruses to it, and that's the situation you had in Jesus' day. The New Covenant is like Mac. It runs so much better. And, and that's the issue here. There's a transition happening, and Jesus is trying to illustrate that in a number of ways. Uh, if there was a key word for this passage, it would be the word new. New. New, And I've entitled this sermon, New, New, New. Now, if I was reading really biblical, I would have entitled it, New, 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 New. Because there's actually eight times in the passage where it says, New. And uh, there's one time it's translated as fresh in the ESV. But that is the focus of this. There's something new happening with the arrival of Jesus. And he is pressing that point forward in our passage. You might say it like this, that in this passage, Jesus will show the inappropriateness of keeping the old forms when he has come and the incompatibility of the old forms now that he has come. So, there will be some, despite Jesus coming and bringing this new way, who will still prefer the old. Who will still prefer the old. I don't know if you've ever gotten, you know, an Apple product before. Maybe you got a watch. Maybe you got an iPhone. Maybe you got a computer. An iPad. Something. And I mean, it is fun opening those if you didn't get it used. And it's like, you almost want to, the packaging is like an experience. It's like, whoa, this is so cool, right? And uh, there's just such a freshness to it, a newness to it. Anyway, you can tell. I'm a Mac guy. (laughs) Um, But there is something fresh. There's something new about what Jesus is doing here. And that is what he's doing he's going to give multiple illustrations to essentially make the same point about the newness of what he is doing you can say what happens when jesus comes newness newness so that's what we're going to see we're going to see as we walk through this passage three things that jesus brings at his coming the celebration jesus brings at his coming the change Jesus brings at his coming, and the choice Jesus brings at his coming. Let's first consider the celebration Jesus brings at his coming. In verses 33 to 35. And the encounter begins with what is kind of like a question, but it's more of a a statement that has an implied question or accusation in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But your but yours eat and drink. I so you, was like, is there a question in there? Like what what, what are you guys saying? But he knows exactly what they're saying. Why don't your disciples fast in this way? Jesus' practice and his disciples is different than two groups. It's the disciples of the Pharisees, and the disciples of John the Baptist. And so these disciples are fasting often, they're praying, but Jesus and disciples are, they just, in fact, the context is they just came out of Matthew's, Levi's uh, party, and they've been certainly eating and drinking. They're not fasting. And so what gives, Jesus? Jesus? Now, what do these two groups have in common? John the Baptist, disciples, Pharisees. Well, you could make a case that both of these groups are looking to see restoration or renewal, we might say, in Israel. They want to see the system reformed in some way. Now, these two groups may go about it differently, but the disciples of John are following in John's footsteps and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand seeking renewal of the people and preparation of the Messiah. Pharisees, likewise, in a maybe different way, are wanting to see the people uh, act in a, in a righteous way. And yet, the, especially for the Pharisees, their method of seeing renewal in Israel was simply to do more of the same, to do more ceremonies, to add on to that, to pile on, and that's what they do. They fast. Now, we have to take a little bit of time to explain fasting here. This is not intermittent fasting. You know, that's kind of popular right now. Um, This is uh, really a giving up of food and drink for the purpose of having an intensity in your pursuit of God. Now, pop quiz. How many times a year, was Israel and the law required to fast? Think about that for a second. Okay, I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's, I don't know, it's probably a few times. Uh, it's one. There's one time a year that they're commanded to fast. It's on the Day of Atonement. In preparation for the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23, you can read those, And that's when they were to fast. Now, of course, Israel did fast at other times, but they weren't commanded. Those are just describing what happened. And other people fast, the Ninevites fast. They call a fast when Jonah comes and preaches. But that wasn't commanded. That was just what happened. And so there's other times a a fast happens with Esther. But once again, that wasn't uh, commanded by God. It was something they did. And think about fasting this way. Fasting is when it's almost like you forget to eat because something is so pressing. Something is so concerning you that you're just so absorbed in that that you forget to eat. You, you're almost like I, I I I can't even focus on that. I have to focus on this issue, and that's what you see in the scriptures. Now, what happened was, uh, over the years, Judaism began to add to this one commanded fast, and it became more. Of, you know, yes, it may became a tradition, but then it became more of an expectation. And so by the time you get to Jesus and His disciples, uh, Jesus and and the time in which He's ministering, the Pharisees had established a pattern of two fasts a week. And later when we look at the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, you'll see that twice a week they're fasting, and it's on Mondays and Thursdays uh, that they're fasting. And so twice a week, and this became an expectation that you would do this if you were really godly then you would, you would fast. This is the nature in part of legalism. It's coming up with the traditions that are extra biblical. And that's fine if you want to do those things. Like if you say like, I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. and I'm going to read my Bible at 5 a.m., whatever. Great, go, go for it. But don't you be telling the rest of us that that's what we have to do to be godly uh, because that's just not in the Bible, right? Uh, or just any other preference thing that you find to be helpful for yourself. You can make rules for yourself, but you, but you cannot say that those rules are binding on other people uh, for their spiritual life. And so that's what was happening. They, were, uh, they had added these fasts, and so that's what they're doing. They're fasting, and, but Jesus' disciples are not doing that. They're not following in the same way. They're standing out. And, and we can't prove this without a shadow of doubt, but it's likely the disciples of John are pro- probably fasting in the hopes of the Messiah and the kingdom coming, uh, so wanting that to take place. the Pharisees loved to have these traditions and to make them an expectation for others. Also, the Pharisees loved to, want, loved to make other people know that they were doing these things, right? So like, if the Pharisees lived today, they would be, you know, Instagramming, uh, Instagram storying their, uh, their fasting and YouTubing their, their fasting, you know, tips for fast, 10 tips for fasting. You know, they'd just be talking about it all the time. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, he, he says, to beware of doing your righteousness before men where you may be seen. And, and he's really rebuking them because he's like, this shouldn't be something anyone really knows that you're doing. You guys are making yourselves look haggard so that people ask you about it. Oh, well, why do you look like, oh, I've just, I've been fasting, you know. <laughs> and, and they wanted that. They wanted that attention. And so Jesus calls them out in other places about their religiosity And the problem was they thought they could get back to God by just doing more and more of their own efforts and their own rituals. The way back to God was through a work of God in the heart. And that is the New Testament ministry or Jesus' ministry of the new covenant. It is to do a work in the heart, a work of regeneration to create a new heart, to give people new hearts, to make them new. And so this is the context in which they make their accusation. And how does Jesus answer their accusation, their implied question? Well, he gives you a number of illustrations, ones that they would understand, very uh, easy to relate to. Listen to this first illustration in verse 34. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Simple point, fasting is inappropriate at a wedding. Everyone gets that. That's what's so beautiful about each of these illustrations. Everyone goes, oh yeah, that's so obvious. You may have been to a wedding where you didn't like the food, or you didn't think there was enough food, but surely, I'm almost I am certain you've never been to a wedding where they, after after the couple's been married, and then you know the the, the pastor, the officiant, gives a little like thing about oh, the couple wants to thank you for coming, and they would like to invite you after the service to grab uh, in the closet some sackcloth and ashes, and, and we're going to fast together and pray. You'd be like, what is, what are these people? You know, <laughs> I'm going to get my gift back. I'm returning this thing. You know, uh, what is happening? No, actually in these days, rather than the couple getting married and then going off for a week or so to uh, a honeymoon, they would get married and stay for a week and everyone would party together for a week. So the honeymoon was like a, you stay there and you party with your friends and family during that time. And even the Pharisees understood this, that at, at a wedding, you did not have to follow these fasting regulations. Because it, you, you didn't have to do anything that would hinder your joy in that time. And so Jesus is the perfect illustration. Hey, don't, wouldn't you guys refrain from fasting at a wedding? Of course you would. Now this is especially relevant for the disciples of John the Baptist. Why? Well, because the way that John described the coming of Jesus was in wedding language. In John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 38, or sorry, 28, John said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John says, hey, I'm the best man at this wedding. And the bridegroom has come. Jesus is the bridegroom. And what happens when the bridegroom comes? Joy. Joy. John says, I've got great joy now that the bridegroom is here. And so what is Jesus saying? Hey, you guys are fasting, the epitome of mourning, and look, even your own leader has said, this is the time of rejoicing. The bridegroom is here. Wake up. And so Jesus' main point is that the presence of the bridegroom makes it inappropriate to fast. I know you can serve broccoli and cauliflower at a five-year-old's birthday party, but that would be inappropriate, right? It's not like it's wrong. It's just inappropriate, right? Let them have cake, right? Let them eat cake. <clears throat> so that's the issue here. Now, what is Jesus implying by this first illustration? He's implying that he is the bridegroom, John said it. Jesus is implying that. Now the Old Testament used this illustration of the groom of Israel and it didn't so much use it to speak of the Messiah but of, of just Yahweh, of God. And, and there's a number of occasions. Um, you have Isaiah 54, 5 and 6, 62, 4 to 5, Hosea 2, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16. It comes up a lot. Uh, I would have used the rest of our time if we read them all. But, so we want to make progress. I want to preach other books of the Bible too. So, uh, so that was an image of Yahweh for his people. And so Jesus using this is, is in a way a subtle indication of his deity. He is taking the role that Yahweh has in the Old Testament. And of course, we understand as, as the church that this imagery is also used for the church to speak of them being the bride of Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom. Ephesians 5 especially, and then the wedding supper of the lamb in Revelation 19. And so Jesus himself is the bridegroom. What a great picture. What a great picture of God's love for his own. This is probably one of the best uh, illustrations of justification. That we are united to Christ, and therefore all that is his becomes ours, and all that is ours becomes his. We have this union with him um, that is a close relationship, one of the closest relationships, and and, and so all of our sin is imputed to him, and all of his righteousness is now ours, and every spiritual blessing comes to us through our union with Christ, and that union is greatly pictured, wonderfully pictured in marriage. So Jesus is, is saying, this is a time of celebration. The bridegroom has come, and therefore it makes it inappropriate to fast. Instead, there ought to be celebration in his presence. This is a time for rejoicing. When Jesus is present, it is a time of joy. When you read kingdom passages, what I mean is like when when Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth and rules and reigns on and from the earth, there's lots of joy language there. It is a feast of a rich banquet of food and there's rejoicing. Even before that, in Deuteronomy, multiple times God commands his people to rejoice and party. You know, he'll say, yeah, you know, rejoice, and, and it's like bad things will happen to you if you don't rejoice, Israel. I mean, God is really serious about joy, <laughs> and he wants them to enjoy him and his blessings. Now, fasting is appropriate in anticipation of the new covenant and the Messiah, that era, but once he comes, that, that form now becomes inappropriate, and they are meant to give way to the joy of his presence. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, I'm here. Why are you still fasting? But then he adds a little twist to this illustration that is just kind of odd. If you think about the illustration, a little jarring. Verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so, okay, you're tracking with the basic illustration. It's, hey, when you go to a wedding, no one fasts there. Everyone is feasting. And then, when you know when they take the bridegroom away and murder him, and you're like, "What? What? <laughs> what wedding have you been to where that happens?" You know the things happening, the couples are married, and then it's like all of a sudden, you know, a, a bunch of people come in and they, they grab the the bridegroom and they they take him away violently and then they kill him. I'm like, what is happening? Well, this is of course a a veiled illustration, a, a prediction of Jesus and his death. This this word taken away, it's a violent word. He's violently taken away to be killed. And so can you imagine that? The groom is taken away at the wedding. It's likely an allusion to Isaiah 53, that great text uh, about the Messiah's suffering. Isaiah 53, verse eight. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Jesus is saying, when the bridegroom is taken away, when I'm taken away in death, that will be a time for mourning. And that's exactly what happened. There was mourning. There was sadness after the death of Jesus in those, in those three days. You remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, those men come to Jesus and they say to him, we thought that he was... Uh, going to deliver Israel, and it says, it, it says in the text that they were sad, that they were sad. It brought grief. But Jesus is saying, that hasn't come yet. Right now, I'm here with you, and so it's a time of joy. And after the resurrection, that will be a time of joy as well. In fact, in that same passage where it says that they were sad on the road to Emmaus, later in the same chapter, when they realize that it's Jesus and he's been resurrected, in 2441, it says, when they still disbelieved for joy, they, and, and for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? So they're, they're, they're joyful now. Verse 52 And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Uh, John uh, records the upper room uh, teaching of Jesus. And he says this in John 16, verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so here we see, we live in the era of joy. We live in the era of resurrection. There is, yes, an anguish and a longing for Christ to return and establish his kingdom, but there is a joy that Christ has accomplished salvation. Salvation accomplished, and it's being applied. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not Now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christians ought to be those joy-filled people and carefree, easygoing, unburdened people, right? Because our burden has been lifted, our greatest burden. One of the things I consider a sign of health and encouragement is when you're just kind of moseying around during our fellowship times, there's a lot of laughter, a lot of laughing, a lot of joy, a lot of uh, cutting up. Now, there is a time, to be sure, for weeping. We need to allow for that. We need to weep with those who weep. I'm not saying at all times, you know, uh, that, that we are, we're just kind of monotone. We just have the same, um, same response all the time. But, but there is a place for sorrow. We've looked at Psalms of Lament. But here, the idea is just we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And there's laughter heard among us. How encouraging. That is the, the nature of the believer. They are joyful. Pastor I know told a story about how uh, he was working uh, with some contractors and helping them uh, do some work, and they were hanging sheetrock. And they, he and another guy were just having a, a blast, and they were, him and another believer, and they were just like, they were cutting up, they were joking, they were like, let's see how, you know, how fast we can hang sheetrock. And, and they're just laughing and, and joking and just cracking up. Well, there was a Mormon who was doing uh, work on another part of the house and he was like, what's going on with these guys? So he talked to the, the main boss on, on the site and he said, what is going on with these guys? Are those guys drunk? <laughs> he said, are those guys drunk? And he said, no, they're not drunk. Uh, that guy is the pastor of our church. <laughs> they're just having fun. And then he explained to him, you know, God has saved them from their sins. They, they just are so joyful that God has saved them. And joyful Christians make great evangelists. They're just excited about what God has done. They, they, and, and sometimes we, we can get over that in a sense. We, we forget the great work God has done. We need those reminders. And yeah, this is amazing. I mean, sour Christians attract no one. You know, they, they don't evangelize. They, Wouldn't you like to be like me? <laughs> it's like, uh, no, I would not actually. Christ has come, the new era is here. Dear Christian, your sins have been forgiven. That's one of my preaching, professors used to say, "Send a missionary to your face. <laughs> Send a missionary to your face. Smile, right? This is great. God has done a work. The king has come. The new covenant has arrived. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell them. You ought not to fast because I'm here. I'm here. This is the celebration Jesus brings at his coming. The celebration he brings at his coming. May the Lord increase our joy, time and again. Notice secondly, the change Jesus brings at his coming. The change Jesus brings at his coming. He continues with a couple more illustrations to make his point. The first is related to sewing a patch on a garment. Look at verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, for some young people, this might be hard to grasp. They buy clothing with holes in it. And uh, so what's the deal? I don't understand. But this is a time when you had to get as much out of your clothing as you could. And so you get a hole, you got to patch it up. And so Jesus tells a funny story. He's saying, okay, if you get a hole in that garment, like a suit, you don't go to the store, buy a new suit, and then cut a hole out of the new suit and sew it onto the old one. That would be silly because you would do three things at least. You would ruin the new garment you just bought. Uh, Not only that, but because it's unshrunk, it will tear away from when it uh, when it's washed. It'll tear away from the the old garment you've sewn it to. And third, it won't match. They they won't match. They don't go together. Now I don't know if you've had this experience. I've had it a few times where you get a shirt, t-shirt, get some pants, and you're like, these are the best pants I've ever had. This is the best shirt I've ever owned. It fits me so good. It's so great. And you're like, man is so good. And then you wash it, and it shrinks. And you're like, ah, I can't wear this anymore. It's like a muscle shirt now. <laughs> I don't want this. And, and, and I've had that where I, I, it was like my favorite shirt to I never wore it again, because it's like, just I can't wear this thing. And that's the idea. We understand that. Clothing can shrink, depending on what material it's made out of. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's unshrunk, and so you, you sew it onto this new garment. Uh, you cut a piece out. You sew it onto the old one, and then when you wash it, it pulls apart. It doesn't work. You can't do that. That's his point. The point he's making is that the, the old garment and the new patch are incompatible. Incompatible, they don't mix. He's saying you don't need a patch, you need a new coat, you need a new garment. And what Jesus is trying to get at, he's come to bring a whole new wardrobe. He's come to change their whole wardrobe. And the second illustration is like this one, uh, about change, but it's about wine and wineskins. Look at verse 37 and 38. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And this one you might need a little more background on. What they would do is they would uh, take a, make a wineskin from an animal. So they would, they would kill the animal, they would cut off its head, they would then take from that hole and they would pull everything out from the inside of the animal, all of its entrails, uh, its bones, and then they would uh, get the hair off of the animal, they would tan it slightly, um, and then they would sew up all of the, uh, any holes that there were uh, in the skin of the animal and they would just leave this one hole open at the head of the animal. And so once they'd done that and it had been tanned to you know, uh, mitigate some poor taste, then they would pour into it new wine. Uh, they would pour this new wine into it and then they would close up that, that hole at the head and let it uh, ferment. And so then the process of fermentation would happen inside of this, this skin, this wine skin, and the bubbling would happen, and there would be expanding uh, inside of the wine skin. And you're like, at this point, thinking, I don't think I ever want to drink wine, you know, in this day. What is, oh, that's so gross. But uh, leaving that aside, it would, uh, the new skin would have a, a, a elasticity to it, so that as this chemical reaction is taking place inside, there's room for it to expand and grow, even though it's sealed up. And then, of course, once uh, it's ready to be drunk, you could open up the, the head cavity and you could drink it, right? You can have some. And you could, like, tie the legs around your, your neck and so it could, like, hang there. And then you could kind of, it was like an ancient version of a camel pack, right? <laughs> Except wine. And, of course, afterward, you could use it for water or milk. Uh, but that's how you did it. That's how you made it right? Who wants to try? You know, um, so you have this ancient camel pack. And uh, the, the thing you wouldn't do is after you had done this whole process and you had, you had made your wine and you would use, the, uh, use up the wine, now you have an empty wineskin. Now during that process of, uh, of expansion, there, the wineskin would become more brittle, and you couldn't just use it on and on and on indefinitely. You would have to make a new wineskin. And so the issue was if you were to just be lazy and and put new wine in again to the old wineskin, what would happen was when that process of fermentation happened again, now the wineskin is brittle and you've made a wine bomb. And so what happens is at some point in that uh, chemical reaction, it explodes. And so you've lost your wineskin and you've lost your wine on the ground. Everyone loses. That's what Jesus is saying. That is the point he's making. And they would all go, oh yeah, of course, yeah, we get that. We're like, oh, <laughs> what is this? The point, once again, is the incompatibility of these two. Now, the images I think are easy enough to understand in and of, in and of themselves, but what do they illustrate? What is Jesus talking about? What does he mean by old and new garments? What does he mean by new wine and old wine and new wine skins and old wine skins? You ever think about that? You're reading your Bible, you're like, okay, I think I know what he's saying, but what is he saying? (laughs) What do these represent? There's two main options, and uh, let me give them to you, uh, how people take this. The first option is to view the new uh, that Jesus is bringing is the new message he's bringing, the the uh, the gospel he's proclaiming. And the old would be viewed as the corrupted form of Judaism that the Pharisees had developed. And the argument would be that the Pharisees had added a lot to the Mosaic system. And Jesus is saying, I- I'm not coming to patch up your man-made religion, pour my message into your forms that you've created. And this would be showing the incompatibility of syncretism, blending the two. Now this is actually true. Like you cannot blend the message of Jesus with anything else, with any other religion or worldview philosophy. Man-made religion and Jesus' message do not mix. They oppose one another. And so the application for this view would be that false religions, false beliefs that try to mix parts of Christianity with their system will not work. They'll destroy both. So Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, I and mean, you could add any others who would, who would take parts even of, uh, they would take parts of the Mosaic system and try and blend them together and say that you have to keep these. It'd be a new form of the Judaizers. Things like that. It would also include systems which are incompatible with the Bible's teaching. So like mixing uh, Evolution with the Bible's teaching on creation or much of secular psychology and psychotherapy, which has opposing views about the nature of man and how people change and trying to mix those together or critical race theory or Marxism and these worldviews and trying to blend them together with the scriptures. And so that would, be the, that would be some of the application in that first view. The second view is as follows. The new wine and the new wineskins represent the new covenant that Jesus brings The old wine, the old wineskins represent the old Mosaic covenant along with its regulations. Not necessarily a corrupted form, but simply the Mosaic system as it was given. In this interpretation, Jesus is saying that the new covenant is not meant to patch the old covenant, but is a new garment altogether. And his new covenant message is not to be poured into the regulations and rules and systems and ceremonies of the Old Covenant mosaic system. The idea would be that when you have an old garment with holes in it, you get rid of it and you get a new garment. Now, this does not mean, in this interpretation, that the Old Covenant was bad. By no means. Paul says that. Is the law sin? No, by no means. Rather, the idea is that the Old Covenant given by Moses, was meant to find its completion in Christ. It was to point to Christ. That was its job. Now, actually, I'm going to hint at you, you hint at maybe a solution that that might work for both. Uh, I think he's talking about the second view. I think he's talking about the new covenant comes and it, it is incompatible with the Mosaic system. One was meant to lead to the other. However, in order to have a corrupted form of of Judaism, you have to have the real thing. So, of course, Jesus is touching on any corrupted form of man-made religion that is incompatible with the new covenant. So, that works, too. So, we're kind of, we're fine either way. But I think what he's focusing on is that he's come to bring the new covenant, and it is as the fulfillment and the bringing to the end of the mosaic system. And there's some extremes to be avoided here. One is to the extreme to say that, okay, well, then the Old Covenant has no relevance to us whatsoever. We don't learn anything. We just, we just rip that part out of our Bible. No, 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 no. Don't do that. All Scripture is profitable for us, and it has a great pedagogical value. You would be, we need a whole Bible to make a whole Christian, I like to say. And so we need all these parts. Yet the other extreme is for some who would say, really, the Old Testament Mosaic Law is still in force today and we need to see its application in our society and, and just it's full on uh, applicable and binding really is the key word. It's binding on us today. And there's some who say that, but I think that's a wrong misstep uh, as well. The better approach is to see how the scriptures present the Old Covenant as finding its fulfillment in the New Covenant. And so the purpose of the Old Covenant and I might be losing some of you right now, because we're getting a little heady, okay? So just, just, just know, you've got to pay attention right now, okay? This is going to pay off, though. To help you understand, let me just show you why this is relevant. Just one example why this is relevant. Someone's going to say to you, well, you guys say homosexuality is sinful, but you eat shellfish. And those are both right next to each other in the Mosaic Law. So why come, how come you eat this, but you condemn that, okay? So that's the kind of question you're going to get. How do you reconcile What do you explain to them? Okay, here's we're going to get some of those answers, okay? So... Um, The Old Covenant's purpose was to be like a big arrow pointing to the New Covenant and saying, hey, look out for this. We're preparing you for this. The Old Covenant is not in conflict with the New Covenant, but one leads to the other. The one was made to give way to the other as the fulfillment of the other. And so if you try to mix the New Covenant and the Old, you lose both. And so the Old Covenant served a purpose to lead to Christ and the New Covenant. And so therefore, Jesus does not come to fix the old covenant, to patch it up, to pour something new into it. No, he, he's bringing something new. The old covenant could not change the heart. It could command, but it could not change the heart. Now, we'll see this is a challenge in the church going on in Acts 11, Acts 15. There's this challenge of, should we make the Gentiles keep the Mosaic law? You know, should we make them get circumcised? And, and they're saying in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, no, no, they don't have to do that. They don't have to keep the law of Moses. It's interesting that he's dealing in part with the disciples of John the Baptist because they serve as a transitionary group that is still a part of the old system, but, but now they're being exposed to the new system under Jesus. And later in Acts 19, there's gonna be a group who, of John's followers who had not yet heard that the Holy Spirit had been given. And so when they hear that, they're, hey, this is great, we welcome this, we welcome the change of the new system. But the Pharisees are having a harder time making that switch as we will see. Now, notice some of the ways, I think this will be helpful for you, especially in thinking through this issue. Notice some of the ways the New Testament speaks of the New Covenant's relationship to the Old Covenant. Okay, we're we'll doing a Bible study here. Go to Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven. And remember the context of our passage and the wedding language. Romans seven, verse one. Romans seven, verse one. so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So he's saying, here's an illustration, marriage, right? When the spouse dies, they can, they're free to remarry. And he's saying, he's relating the covenant, he's saying the Mosaic covenant, you died, right? That marriage is no longer happening. Now you're free to be married to another, to Christ, and the new covenant he brings. That's the illustration. And that fits well with our passage. Uh, another place, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter eight. Hebrews chapter eight. And in Hebrews chapter eight, there is a long quotation of Jeremiah 31, which is about the new covenant. So that's our context. And he describes the new covenant. And then after quoting at length from Jeremiah 31, he ends the chapter in verse 13, Hebrews 8, saying, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So obsolete, you know, have you heard of planned obsolescence, right? Companies will make a product that they don't plan to last forever, right? And so that you've got to buy a new one, right? And it's going to break down. And that, that's the idea of the old covenant. There was a built-in planned obsolescence that it would give way to the new. And so he's saying when the new covenant comes, it makes the first, the first is the Mosaic covenant, obsolete, obsolete. Another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Hang with me, hang with me. 2 Corinthians 3. Listen to the language Paul uses to contrast the old Mosaic covenant and the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, now, he's gonna call the Mosaic covenant the ministry of death. The ministry of death carved in letters on stone, that sounds like the tablets given to Moses, right? Carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end. Now, he says it's glorious. He's saying it's not, it wasn't bad. It wasn't wrong. No, it was good. It served a purpose, but it is being brought to an end. Will not, verse eight, the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? That's another way of saying better. It's better. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of that glory, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end, there it is again, came with glory much more, will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And what's amazing is he's gonna say at the end of of our passage in Luke, he's saying, you guys are so inebriated on the old wine, you don't even want the new wine. He's saying, they have a veil. They don't want it. They don't want the new thing. They prefer the old. But he's saying, the new is better. He's saying, the old came with glory. The Mosaic Covenant was glorious. It was good. But the new covenant has more glory. And it has so much glory that it makes the old covenant look like it has no glory. Even though it did. It it, it outshines it in comparison. That's the idea. Another passage, Galatians chapter, Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three. starting verse 23. Galatians 3, 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. I think this is the entirety of the Mosaic Covenant. Imprisoned until, no, this is not language, until, right? You were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, it's like a, the idea is like a tutor, um, a teacher, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, read the new covenant, we are no longer under a guardian, read the Mosaic covenant. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of us as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. So he's saying the mosaic covenant was like a tutor. It was like holding the hand. It was like the teacher who's like smacks the kid's hands. And says, hey, pay attention, you know. It's like, and, and it just kept Israel focused to get to the Messiah. Kept them. Uh, f- uh, it prepared them for the Messiah, so that when he came, and so he's like, your kids don't have a tutor forever, right? They have a tutor until the time of adulthood, and that's the idea. The new covenant comes. One more. One more. Um, in Hebrews chapter 9, I forgot to give this one while we were in Hebrews, while we were in the neighborhood, we passed by it. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8 to 10. Verses 8 to 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So in the old covenant, you offer these sacrifices, but they can't can't clear the conscience. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body, imposed, there's our word again, until the time of reformation. So there's a time factor built into this. So what do we learn from this? We should not view Jesus as being opposed to the old, but rather being the fulfillment of it. And even the Old Testament spoke of the new covenant as better than the old covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, I'm gonna make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with your forefathers. And so he, he indicates that this is a better covenant. It is, even the Old Testament does that. Deuteronomy 29 and 30 hint at the coming new covenant because the old is sufficient to bring heart change. And so, it was the intention of the Old Testament writers for the New Testament to make the Old Covenant obsolete. This is not something the New Testament writers made up. You could put it like this. I like to think of it's like the Old Covenant. Mosaic law came with an expiration date on it, like a gallon of milk. You know, good until this date. What is that date when the New Covenant comes? If you had a coupon. Right? And and it had an expiration date on it, and you took it to the store. Remember like Hobby Lobby used to have I don't know if they still do. They have you could download your phone and get twenty percent like every time, whatever, on one item. All right. So you go to the store and you show them the coupon, but it's expired, right? Now, to honor the authority of the coupon, what should you do if it's expired? You don't accept it, right? That's what it's got the expiration date on it. So to honor the authority of the Mosaic Covenant, what do you do? When the new covenant comes, you go to the new covenant, right? You, you don't stay with the old. And that's really the issue of Hebrews. They're tempted to say, well, maybe we could just go back. Maybe we could go back to the old covenant. No, you can't. There's no going back. Once it comes, once the new covenant comes, you can't go back. To properly honor the Mosaic covenant means that you don't return to it. It means that you recognize it was an arrow to point you to the destination. And so you don't go back. Imagine if I've been away for a long time and I took a picture of my wife with me, and I'm, I look at the picture, you know, now we have phones, we could do this, but uh, y- you have this picture, and you look, and you're like, oh, I miss her, and you, you remind yourself of her, or I remind, you know, you don't need to do that, but, but I remind myself of my wife, and, and, and then I come home, and I see her, and she's like, hey, and instead of embracing her, I pull out my picture, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's her, I love it. You know, it's like, it's like no, that would be so, now, is the picture bad? No, it's not bad. It's just inappropriate to continue to embrace the picture when the substance is there. Now, this is a massive, important clarification. When you hear language, like we did in Colossians 2, how providential, when you hear language of shadow and substance, that is not referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. It's not saying the entirety of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, is shadow and the New Testament is substance. No, it is being very particular. There's three times that shadow language has a theological import and in all three times, guess what covenant it relates to? The Mosaic Covenant, that's what it does. It's saying the Mosaic Covenant is a shadow. It was like a pop-up book for Israel to say, hey, look at how this works. Look at how your sin separates you over here. Look at how this defiles you. Look at how sacrifice needs to be made. And it was a teaching lesson for Israel until the new covenant came. And so that is what they were trying to, that's what they needed to learn. The old covenant sells great value for us. It is not binding upon us, but it has a great pedagogical teaching value For us. And so that's why Paul in Colossians 2 says, Don't let anyone hold you, judge you for observance of new moons, Sabbaths, um, feast days. Those are all things related to the old covenant. He's saying, We're not under those things. We're we're in a new system. We're under the law of Christ. We're not lawless people. No, we're, we're under the law. He said, "Well, why is there so much overlap between some of the laws in the old covenant and some of the, and, and laws in the new covenant? Well, because there's the, the transcendent law of God. There was law before Moses. There is law after Moses, but there were particular things that were unique to Israel for that time in God's plan that he are no longer binding now. Do they teach us though? Absolutely, they teach us. They're great lessons for us about how we're to understand uh, life and loving God with our lives. So." Think about it like this. You may no longer be under your parents' authority, but you don't chuck everything you learn there. No, you still go, there's great value there. There's great lessons I learned there, but now I've become an adult. And so, the law of Moses was meant to give way to the new covenant. And so therefore, you cannot pour the new covenant into the the old way of the Mosaic covenant. Can't take the new work of God in the heart, the new wine, and pour it into the old rituals of the old covenant. The new work that God does is too dynamic to be contained in the old system. One writer said this, if we try to put the new work of the spirit into the forms, structures, practices, even culture of the old economy, it will do irreparable harm to both the wine and the wineskins. The new life of the spirit, the one new man of this age, along with the new forms that the uh, that the church age brings. What does all this mean for you and I? It means there's an exclusivity to Christ. He has come. This is the only way to approach God. Those old Test- that Old Testament covenant had lots of pictures to say this is how it needs to happen, and now it has happened. This is the only way to come to God. The law pointed to Christ. Now Christ has come. And so there's an exclusivity. There's also a good application here of not elevating our traditions above Scripture or with Scripture. And so all of us have preferences, and that's totally fine. But the Bible doesn't tell us how many songs we have to sing in church or like which songs, right? Uh, There are principles, but, but we have to keep the main things the main thing and not let our preferences... Uh, be something that we impose on others. Now, we're gonna have traditions. We're gonna do those things. We're gonna do things one way, not another. We're gonna have good, prudent reasons for that, hopefully. Uh, but this is a good warning to not take something like the Pharisees do with their fasting and impose it on others and judge them because they didn't do that. And also, they thought they could have acceptance with God by doing those things. Okay, now don't worry. This last point is really quick. Okay, uh, this won't hurt at all. <laughs> um, the choice Jesus brings at His coming. The choice Jesus brings is coming. Look at this final. This is a slightly different illustration, but keeping with that wine uh, picture. Verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. You might think that old wine is better, since it's the older vintage, but the point he's trying to make is that the new is better, that's what he's been saying. The new covenant is better than the old, yet the problem is that they've been drinking so long from the old, they don't even desire the new. The old is good. The idea is it's good enough, or it it suits me just fine. One writer said, those satisfied with the old forms and institutions do not even see the need for the newness that Jesus brings. It's like Jesus saying, you've become inebriated and dulled to reality by the old, and what it was supposed to do. And and you don't even want, you don't even prefer the new. So there's a choice that needs to be made to see the true intention of the old to bring you to the new and make the transition. It's like they were saying, "I'm I'm so happy with the old covenant that I don't even need to look for the savior. I know it pointed us to a Messiah, but I, I don't even need the Messiah. I'm kind of happy, happy with the picture. Just give me the picture. I just want to look at the picture. I don't want the substance, the relationship. It would have said something like, well, we've never done it this way. <laughs> we've never done it this way. Why would you want to stay in the old system when its very purpose was to lead you to the new? Disciples of John Like I said, we're in this transitionary point. They made the jump in Acts chapter nine. Pharisees, however, are not ready to make this transition. Here's a great point for us. Have you embraced the new covenant? What does that mean? What does that language mean? It means Jesus in the new covenant comes to bring forgiveness of sins, a new heart that loves God. He's come to put his spirit within you so that you will know God and that he will dwell within you so that you will be his people. How do you become a partaker of the new covenant? By trust, by faith, but it's a work of grace because if you're so used to your way, you're, you know, I'm content, eh, I don't need the new covenant. You're probably not tempted to say, you know, I want the Mosaic law, but maybe there's some other way that you say, ah, I just, I don't really prefer that. It takes a work of grace, a new work of grace for God to open the heart so that you say, this is better, I have to have this. That's what Hebrews is about. Jesus is better, so don't go back, don't turn away. He's better, let me show you how, better, how much better he is. And so we need this as well. If we become weary of walking with the Lord or persevering until the end, that's why Hebrews is written, that's why Colossians is written. Look how great Christ is. Don't forget, don't forget what he's brought, the newness that he's brought. Continue to hold fast, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are you gonna go? What else do you have? It's hard, yes. But this is the intent of history, to move along to the new covenant that we might be the people of God and have his presence. What could possibly overcome a preference for something more than Christ? Grace. Grace overcomes our stupor, shows us the value of the new covenant he brings. Jesus changes everything in your life. He doesn't come to just patch up holes He comes to give you a new heart, to pour new wine into new wineskins. Praise God. Father, thank you for the new covenant ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's come to bring and that we are the partakers of, that we celebrate. Lord, may we be those who are reminded afresh of the great reason for joy in you. Presence of God within us, the forgiveness of God, being your people, inestimable gifts of value. Lord help us continue to appreciate what you have done and what you are doing in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus, the newness that He brings, and for making us new. In Jesus' name, Amen.